0: Hi, it's Sunday, morning, Sunday after close to almost afternoon, and I want to um, do some uh, go back to regular biographies. I've been a little off uh, on other subjects I, I see and get back to the regular. And the last time I thought about doing a biography, I never get around to was a pre-huddish, and I think I'm going to take a whack at doing them today, even though I hesitate because it's such a wonderfully complicated story. That really, we you talk about the pre-Chadish, I don't mean to be funny about this, you could do like a series of three, four talks, five talks even, about the man and his times, since everything is so colorful and romantic, and most people don't know that. They just don't know it. Today's uh, talk is being sponsored very generously um, by someone who doesn't want his name, but it's in the Nishmas Esther Vashendel, who passed away, according to him, at the age of 101. So, wow, look at that. Um... Now, let me just, uh, take a second here. Okay. I gotta watch out, because if I did a pre-chodesh, and I pulled one book out, and another book, another safer, and another one, and I'm getting, uh, I don't usually do that, but, uh, it becomes kind of productive when you would get piled with 20 swarm all around you. But, um, they're really interesting. Now, our hero today is Achiskeh Da Silva, who was farty. He lived in the 17th century. Um... I know now for some reason from communities farm chatter all Meshoga over Sabatianism, uh, for whatever reason. And uh he, our hero lived in the Sabatian era, even though he's born um just before the death of Shaptai Tri. So no he's not from the Shabtai time. But he's in the post sabatian or the era of Sabatianism, Uh what we call Shabta'ut. Sabatianism was after Shabtai Tri um was deposed or exposed or whatever you want to call it. His bubble was burst, which was in 1666. And our story today is going to take us into the Sephardi world, which has its own ways of reacting to Sabbatianism, different than the Ashkenazi world, Uh, you know. And um, our hero lived all of his life among the Sephardim. I would call him one of the greatest of the Sephardic rabbis of all time, although certainly one of the most controversial, as we shall see. Um, and there's a lot of cool things about the pre but let's get down to business. <laughs> Our hero bo- lived a short life. He reminded me in many respects of the Shach. The Shach also was in the 17th century although well, earlier, and he died before he was 40 or something like that. And also here, he died around 38, 39, so it's like a meteor, you understand? Because he was certainly a genius, a, a gona agonim but then he wasn't, then he was dead. Um, and he just left his books, and uh, a remarkable... <clears throat> Impression. So, what do we? So now we're going to plunge ourselves into Sephardism in the 1600s. Uh, the 1600s were actually a, a certain golden age of the Sephardim, Also, the 1700s, the 1800s, less so. What I mean by that is they had certainly great gadolim, no question about it, in the 1800s. But only in house. Offhand, maybe I'm, I'm. I'm sure I'm wrong. Offhand, I can't think of any big Sephardi rabbi, and they had them who made a big splash in the Ashkenazi world in the 1800s. You know what I mean? Like, I'll give you an example. Take the Benishkai. He was a giant. I don't think anybody heard about him, except for a few school skula. You know, I never heard of any in Poland and uh, Germany, Lithuania, with a very few exceptions. So you had big Sephardim, you know, and like I've said all the time, in Jerba, in uh, Africa, in Yemen, they did. But nobody ever heard of these people. But when you heard, notice it didn't get out of Sephardi land. La Fuque, the 1700s, the 1600s, the 1500s, and before that, when you had these big Sephardim who busted out just not only of Sephardi land and hit the whole from fr- world. You know what I mean? Like Poland, Lithuania, Germany, etc. And the pre certainly won it. <clears throat> now, the name itself is interesting. Our hero, born in Italy, Cheska da Silva. De Silva is not a Jewish name. The Silva is actually a Portuguese aristocratic name. That means, and, by the way, and he's born in Livorno. So that tells you several things. <clears throat> First of all, he's Italian of a certain sug. This is Livorno, the community I've mentioned many times, which was the richy-rich uh, Spanish-Portuguese community. So there's faradim, but Spanish-Portuguese. Uh, many of them were Muranos, were, and they're all children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren of Muranos, without question. That shot Spanish-Portuguese, that they stayed behind and then escaped Inquisition, etc. And if they were lucky, they ended up in Livorno, which was the only city in Italy in the early modern period which didn't have a ghetto, because I told you many times, I I, I assume some of you remember, that Livorno or Leghorn was was like a Ronald Reagan situation. The Grand Duke of Tuscany ruled the area. He said, I want to make money. (laughs) Okay, I'm interested in money, nothing else. And so... Any Jew who moves to this uh, seaside community and helps build it up for business, and of course I take my 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever, thing off the top, you do whatever you want. I won't interrupt you in your practice of Judaism. So you won't be a ghetto. You can dress whatever you want. You do not have to wear a yellow star, all that mishagas. They have in other places, whoever's in this town, provided you're making money. So it was a uh, Spanish, Portuguese, Jewish um, heaven. Uh, Well, it depends how you envisioned these things. Either it was a Sephardic utopia or possibly a dystopia depending on your, you know, social uh, views. But a couple thousand Jews, uh, all of the same type, and uh, they made a fortune because like I said before, is Ronald Reagan. As long as you moved to this town and you were let in, you engaged in trade, and you made money, and they all did, because they were very successful trading all over the Mediterranean and beyond and so they made a fortune in business and of course the Duke got his Khelech but there's still still plenty left over and uh, you know and at the time I'm talking about in the 1600s uh, they were still from Sephardi style you know Spanish Portuguese style as we'll see in a, in a few minutes and uh, Jewishly uh, alert it had a Jewish heart and they knew that they're richer than anybody else. And they wouldn't let any spartan move in the city. This is all where um, our hero was born. That's what I'm telling you this, in 1659. That's momish in the middle of the golden age of the Vornell, when money was being made right and left hand over fist. Uh, it's a, I mean, you're going to laugh at what I'm about to say. But if you understand the youth of the pre it's a little bit like what's going on in many front communities now, where you have a lot of these young guys that just make them money right and left, what I call the new rich, you know, whether in real estate or home improvements or this, that, and the other, whatever it is. You know, not the classic stuff. And these young guys, I don't want to say pictures, but, you know, young guys, you know, who weren't necessarily the best guys in high school, now they're, they're, they're cashing in, okay? That's what LaVorna was. But as I said before, they were you know, I would say socially conscious. And so uh, they were pretty generous in, in bankrolling um, Rabbonim, who wanted to publish their books. Uh, sometimes yeshivas, as we shall see, provided it wasn't in Livorno, uh, where, you know, might cramped their style. Uh, other Sephardic kinds of charities. And it's very interesting. They wouldn't let Ashkenazim in, and they've let very few non-Spanish Portuguese in. Now, the, the reason I mention all this is the Silva is a Gai'sha name. Well, all your Spanish and Portuguese Jews, the type I'm talking about, I don't want to cause this all over again, the Jews who left Spain ran to Portugal and then were forcibly converted. They were, um, when, when they were forcibly converted in the very late 1400s, uh, forcibly converted. So by the Catholics, it's a big zechos to be the godfather of a Jew who's baptizing. And so as a zechos, they would allow the Jew to take that name. So if I were at that time, I was forcibly converted. I would my godfather would be Rockefeller. I can call myself Rockefeller, or Harriman, or I don't know, you know, Trump, something like that, some rich name. So it's funny that these Jews who had no such names like that ended up having these very chashuvah aristocratic names de Silva, right? Anyhow, it's a very variegated very family. He had relatives all over the place in the Spanish-Portuguese diaspora, which we'll see is very important in his story. <coughs> And that's who he is, okay? Now, I don't know exactly who his parents were, but, you know, he was the type of kid that just took naturally to learning. You don't find that too often. He just liked it from a very early age. So he learned with the local rabbinim, and it was clear to young age this guy ain't going into business, <laughs> right? The community had plenty of business people, uh, Ruba, the Ruba, the Ruba. There's always a few in the Sephardi of the old classic type. There's always a few Yehidi schooler who will be for learning. They'll be the Rabbanim, the Dayanim, in the future. And, you know, his family has money, and that's very important in the story. And he happened to be the kid, you know what I mean, who just took off in learning. And he was a genius, and he wanted to learn, so fine. Uh, one of the Rebbeim who learned with him is Israeli. In other words, a lot of poor Sephardic Talmudic would come and spend some time, I don't blame them, you know, try to get in hook up with some rich family and be a tutor or something like that, or get a job in the day school, whatever it is over there, because the salary there was uh, much higher than anywhere else. Because these Livorno Jews were just loaded, you know. And um, one of his rabbin was um, Israeli, you know, had been from Yushalayim. And as a result... It seems that this must have uh, triggered, I would say, uh, in the young boy a desire, like we would say today, to go to Israel to learn yeshiva. You understand? Notice it's okay what you got over here, that's fine, but uh you know what I mean, you wanna you you wanna move and in, 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 in learn in a in a yeshiva. So it's like you know, he's living in I don't know, you know, Baltimore to Five Towns, wherever. You have a good rabbi, and the Rebbe's like this. You are have real potential. You could be a gadol. It ain't going to happen here in Livorno. <laughs> you understand? Not in this day school. So when you're able to move to uh, the super yeshiva, and there happens to be a guy who has set up a super yeshiva where the, the rabbi said I learned it. it's all a very important part of our story. Uh, the halakas the is the, the yeshiva Beit Yaakov, and um, that's where you should go to uh, to vaxay sagadol. And so he did. Now, that means our hero grew up, clearly to me, a family had money um, in very comfortable circumstances. Uh, that's a very important part of the story. That's how he could afford to spend all of his time in learning. Like I said before, as long as only one brother in the family, you know what I mean? As long as only one brother in the family, it's not so bad. Because you have other siblings, and they'll take over the business. And then between them, they can support one guy. Especially if you know he's not wasting time he's really learning away it's not a coffee break situation so uh so he learned there um, in Livorno I don't know to was 18 or 19 something like that and um and then he and then he made, and then he moved to Israel okay then he moved to Israel so uh where he's going to spend it now I told you he died young his late 30s so the whole story over here is a wild and crazy story um and uh, things are going to get compacted in time. Now, <clears throat> I'll say it again. He was a natural genius. No qu- There's no question about that. And he put it all for learning. So that's that's very interesting. He came to Yerushalayim at the age of 20. So I'm trying to explain to you, did you have the good luck to have a, a good Rebbe in high school, let say, or maybe first year in Yeshiva, and you really clicked? And as a result, you learned up a storm, not everybody has this luck, but he clearly did. And so, even though he's 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, but uh, it's working with this Rebbe. So he's learning up a storm, and he waited until he's 20 to move to Jerusalem. Now, listen closely, because this is very confusing. At least, confusing to me. We're talking about a guy who was born in 1659, and therefore, if he moves to Jerusalem in 1679, uh, Earlier in the century, right, uh, the famous halachas katanas, or Khagiz, who was a uh, hajiz, who was from Morocco, uh, made Aliyah. Yakov Chagiz is most unusual in ways people don't usually think about it, as far as I know, because they're all into this, uh, you know, for the Sabatian Meshagaz, and therefore everybody wants to know what did he do with Shabtai Tzvi, because Shabtai Tzvi came to Yerushalayim during his time. And Nathan of Gaza, who I want to be clear, was dead before our hero, you know, showed up in Jerusalem. Nathan of Gaza died in the early 1670s, I believe. And our guy was, you know, born in 1659. So I don't want to confuse you. I know sometimes when you throw dates at people, it confuses them. But I can't help it, you know. I can't help it. It matters. So um, this Khajiz, Chagiz, he was very unusual in the following respect. He was a naturally he's from morocco he's a naturally born education educationist you hear what i said he's interested in the shita of chinuch and what's the right way to make the right school in this case the right yeshiva that's unusual in the history of call israel yeshiva are a plop. somebody gets together starts giving joram people come around there it's more successful less successful you hear about the successful cases. The other cases, you know, fall by the wayside. It happens today in America. happens in Israel also. And life goes on. But here was somebody who thought someone somewhat out of the box. And when you have Chagiz, I don't think most people are familiar with this. Okay? Yaakov uh, Chagiz was on his way to Israel. See, he stopped in Italy and all that sort of thing. That's how you did it in those days. You went by boat. Not across North Africa. Anyhow. Um, he was in Salonika. So that would be in Salonika in the middle of the 1600s. You might see a golden age of Torah in Salonika in the sense they had famous yeshivas and stuff like that. And they had yeshivas in Salonika, I mean, since like 1500. And that means that they had worked out ways, as the sfardim are good at this, of doing things b'shita. Now, was educationally educationally, oisgetracht, with classes, with behinas with, um, you know, graded curriculums and things like that. Not everybody's aware of this, but uh, but that's what happened. Uh, it's not coming from Western influence, because it's Salonika. It's coming rather, I think, from just giving the Chinuch a great deal of thought, and is this the right way to run a school or not run a school, which I don't think we do so much today, but that's what they did. And he was blown away by this, and he said, I'm going to do this in Yerushalayim. So when he was in Italy, he persuaded some richy rich Jews, I think from Livorno Taka. These guys had money to burn. So he persuaded them, the Vega family, to, uh, you know, rich, uh, the Livorno, Jews, you have no idea. And the time I'm talking about, the Livorno Jews had colonies all over the Mediterranean. You get it? You have no idea. If you went to Tunisia, to Morocco, even to Algeria, and place like that, they had to go to journey. The Livorno Jews, because they were so successful in business and well-to-do, they were treated by the Muslim rulers in these North African places better than they treated the locals for You get it? For example, if you lived in Tunisia or Jerba, one of these places, or Tripoli or Algeria and so forth, uh, there are two types of Jewish communities in these centuries. There was the locals and there was these Livorno Jews who lived in gated neighborhoods, had their own synagogue, didn't mix with the other Jews, dressed European, were given special tax breaks by the Muslim authorities. They were never beat up the way the local Jews were beat up. It's a this was the golden age, so to speak, of the Livornos, uh, and our hero came from those ranks. happened to be born into that. Now, uh, Yacco Chagiz persuaded these Richie Riches to bankroll a super yeshiva, and you know he had he did have big plans. And as a result, he was able to set up in the middle of 1600s what he regarded as a super yeshiva with different tracks. It's just of interesting business. This is called Yeshiva Beit Yaakov, but you got to watch out. There are several yeshivas and kolels with that name, and some of them coexisted. So it's very confusing, unless you're really into the history of that time. <laughs> because several people had the same idea. Get bankrolled by some rich and money yeshiva, which you hold will be the perfect uh, uh, system. But his really took off. Uh, he was a real educationist. He had different grades, he had different maslulim, different tracks. So, for example, some kids it's supposed to be Tanakh, and you know what we would call today kids Shulchan whatever they had at that time. You understand those? Those people Those who had Kishronis, and you can tell that from the test, from talking and learning. He put on a different maslul that they'll learn eventually Shas and eventually Dyonis. He's very big to Dyonis. And a guy should learn all the the halacha stuff and then send him out to be a dying somewhere uh and many great sephardi Shadayonim came out from that school it's a little bit like the cloys and brody in the 18th century where there was uh, the the, the beuda learned it's a little bit like that right but except that it had in the best Sephardi style different mausoleum it wasn't only for the geniuses they had a uh, to use american language they had an a B-track, a track a b track a c track It was very interesting <coughs> If you look at the Halachas Katanas, the Shalachas HaLachas was very famous, uh, th- these are questions that he would pop to the student body on Fridays um, and to stimulate them to go figure out the answer. I mean, Shalachas HaLachas HaLachas uh, Just off the top of my head, I don't have it in front of me, the famous question uh, that now in the, the Sebatean historians are into, can you take money from Goyim and use it for uh, Jewish purposes? Because the Protestants in the time of Oliver Cromwell sent money. Pfft, long story, whatever. Uh, he threw that out. Said, what do you guys hold? You get it? That's a, that's a natural machanech You make the guys work and learn it. Of course, he's the Rosh He gives the final psaac. But I'm just telling you, he was such a person. So the place was cooking. In the best sense of the word, they had about 80 guys. And this was the famous Beis Yaakov Yisheba, Beis Yaakov. And... Uh, now, the Russian yeshiva died, ooh, around 1670, something like that, when our hero was a little kid. He gave it to his son-in-law, naturally, naturally. It's uh, Mamusha Galanti, the Mogain. And um, he ran it after him. But as we'll see, and this always happens, the Sultan is Merakid, you know, the, the place will fall apart, not because of uh, problems of learning, or even with money because of mechleukes. The mechleukes killed the money. You get it? The mechleukes was me, yesha barosh. You know, the old story. Uh, which is interesting. But nevertheless, you had Rosh Hashiba A and Rosh Hashiba B. To use modern terminology, you had the Natsiv and then you had Brisker You know, that kind of thing. So, uh, our hero comes to Yerushalayim when he's 20 years old. at 1679. And um, he spends oh, a good 10 years there. More. You know, uh, learning well, about 10 years, learning up a storm. So, no, Zior, he already was a hot shot when he showed up. Okay, he was a hot shot when he showed up. And now he's in a super yeshiva, meaning you're talking with other people who are big Tommy de Um They even tried to make themselves like a shtickle Sanhedrin and all that. So, it's a long, complicated story. It's very interesting. Uh, so, he was there in what I would call a golden era. Now, I want to be very clear Nathan of Gaza had learned there like 30 years before, he was already dead. The fact you're in the same place doesn't mean, you know, one has anything to do with the other. And Shabtai was dead already at the time we're talking about. Uh, he died, I think, in 1676, and our guy showed up in 1679. But the remains, the detritus of Sebatianism is always around, but it's in the Sephardi style. Sephardi style is different than the Ashkenaz. You know, even today, you know, in Israel, you have these guys. Um, this is very well known. With it's Friday, you could find the guy that in the morning, he dials like a Kavon on Saturday, and then he goes to play uh, soccer and the beach in the afternoon. It's not a steer to them. You understand? The Ashkenaz will say, Halonu HaTolitz Are you Shomashah? Are you Shomashah? With them, it's more loose goose. So that's exactly what it was in Sabatianism. The same guy that might say, I like Shabtai three, I think he might be Mashiach, will also bankroll Yeshiva that's totally... Not that way, you see, and you say, make up your mind. It's it's loose goose with them. You understand? It's loose goose. That's what it was in the late 1600s, for sure, and even afterwards. It's not easy for most historians to understand it, because they're not so him. And you have to, like, put yourself in, in, in that kind of mindset. But uh, anyway, I don't want to go off on a tangent. So anyway, so here's our guy learning in the 1680s. Now He's in his 20s. And I saw somewhere, it's really funny, that um, at the time we're talking about, this Sephardim had the, um, uh, the bachelor, the Takhanosar of Vakim, you know, which is if you're 20 years old and not married, uh, then you can't live in Yerushalayim. It's a famous old zah. Um, here, let me, hold on for a second. Hmm. This is a famous old somewhat controversial business uh, which they kept for a long time, which is, which you got it by the time you're 20 and you're a Zakhar, you're male, you got to be married. Um uh, You know, for for obvious reasons, Uh, they, uh you know, in an old way of thinking, baroque way of thinking, you know, from the three H's, homo, hetero, hiero, you know, they didn't want these guys running around in the relatively small community of Rishlam and causing trouble of one sort or another. It's just an interesting approach. Uh I don't know if you're in, I mean, you probably don't know anything about this. The, the uh, But they kept a long time. I remember Agnon, the writer, not that I read much about him, but uh, he said the first time he moved to Sholeim, I think before the First World War, maybe. And he's Ashkenaz. And he ran out of Rechaim Zunnenfeld, And Rechaim Zunenfeld, what bothered him was, I guess, you got to get married, man. <laughs> you know, you can't stay here. Now, he, if, if you're a bachelor, move to Tel Aviv or something like that. And this is old school, old school. Now, uh, I heard that if Yosef got rid of his with his son doesn't agree, whatever. <laughs> this is the era we're into. Now, I think this is just interesting. A guy shows up in Unsholayim. They say, are so you married? No, hit the road. <laughs> I came here to learn, you know. And remember, he's got money, too. I'm sure he came. He didn't need to go and no, um, you know, KOL check, you understand? Know, he's from Livorno. Uh, he's got family to silver all over the place. They got branches in Amsterdam and this place and that place. You know, he, he doesn't need a co check. So um, he ain't get married right away. Now, I don't know how he swung that, but he got married when he was 22. So I'll put us at 1681. And he married somebody very interesting, which you would imagine. Because you say like this: what's the problem? You know, he's a Zahar, she's in a cave, I guess, marry him together. A guy like I'm talking about with the cultural background, you just can't marry any girl. You understand? And he ends up marrying somebody, to to my mind, it's very very interesting. Um, He marries the daughter of Rafal Moshe Malki, who's a Sephardi. Rafal Moshe Malki is living in Jerusalem. He is a Murano. He was born in Spain. Uh, And obviously, so this is really interesting you're marrying the daughter of somebody who was born, you know, not keeping kosher. And obviously, like these different Muranos, the he escaped eventually, and he moved east, east, east. On the way, he got an MD. I think in Italy. So, you're marrying somebody, and now he's in Kolel. He's living in this hothouse community in Rishalayim, and he's a Talmud Chalham. So you're not marrying a girl from a regular family. You, you can hear already that our hero is coming from, I hate to use the word a more great kind of background because he certainly was super from, but nevertheless he's Italian, he's Livorno, you know he they 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 have this certain style. He can't marry some Spanish girl from I don't know, you know I mean the backwoods of a uh, Turkey or something like that. That's how it goes, and so he marries somebody who would be somewhat aristocratic, because that's who he was, and remember, um, uh, former Marchalchi was. Just an interesting guy that you see sometimes in Kolim now. A guy who had a, a successful medical career, um, and he was the re- the doctor of the Jews in of Shalom, Menasseh uh, Kabbal Pras. So in all that he must had a, 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 a you know what I mean. He, he came from a comfortable financial background himself. Uh, I think the other sister, if I remember correctly, married Moshe Chagiz. You know, the big anti-Sabatian in, in in Amsterdam. Is this very interesting? Okay. Uh, our hero will have one child, a son, David, and he will be a real fromy living in line and a doctor. Now, I don't know if he got an MD, but he probably, uh, I, I assume, he learned by attending his grandfather, you know, which an apprentice doctor. So uh, that's one way of doing it. Um, but that's very great. See, these two guys are very from, on the one hand. But they're also breaked. You know, it's not the type of thing. The only Munichol is no good. I forgot to mention, in the, you won't believe this, in the base Yaakov Yeshiva, in the super Yeshiva, by this education, Yaakov Chagiz, they had secular study courses. Now, <laughs> not French literature, you know. It was more like science and math to help you with learning. You're going to be a dying, you got to know uh, your calendar, you got to know your astronomy, uh, for many halachas, like uh, for a uh Arav, uh, you got it, and, and, and a mikvah, you got to know your, uh, you know, math and geometry. You know what I mean? But they actually took course in this. So he really was a very unusual type person. And our hero is learning in a very unusual cheap because on the one hand, there's a tremendous depth. These guys are learning very deep and very heavy. Uh, they really are. And remember, you're talking in learning with other smart guys. But at the same time, they don't have this kind of business where anything, uh, in, in, in any book of secular is trafe. Uh, they're just not coming from that background. Okay, it's just what it is. Now, our hero spends so and so many years there. Uh, I can tell you right now, I don't think most people get this right. I can only tell the way I understand it. If I'm right or right, if I'm wrong or wrong, just the way I understand it. And that is that by the time uh his Rebbe is the son of the successor of the founder of the educationist uh... galanti now uh, that's the Rebbe. now um... listen closely they have started having mechlekes. i don't know exactly what they must have thought that he shouldn't be the rosh yeshiva of moshe galanti or maybe stealing the money who knows you know when you get these kind of Russian and hara situation who knows what they're saying and the anti the, so they formed two factions like in Punevish now, you know, those in favor of the current but those anti. And the anti guys wrote to the richy-riches in, in Italy and elsewhere, said, don't send money. Because this guy's like misusing the money or something like that. Something along those lines. Uh, ugly and dirty business. Uh, and by the way, that's all the richie riches wanted to hear. Oh, I shouldn't send money to Yeshiva? I'm always willing to hear that. <laughs> you know, that you're always willing to do. Cut the check, stop the check? Sure. <laughs> so um, this brought a, a crisis financially. And so our hero uh, was asked by his father-in-law, obviously, to go on a fundraising trip in the Sephardic Diaspora. In the golden age of the Sephardic Diaspora when there were a lot of richy-rich Spanish-Portuguese Jews in different places. Now, mind you, there were also a ton of very poor Spanish-Portuguese Jews in different places. Don't, you know, have a false understanding. But there were the rich ones, too. And so He's going to go, like Hves the Chidal later on, uh, on a journey in Europe, you know, in, the, in, in Livorno, obviously, where he knew people, of course, and maybe he was in other cities in Italy, and then he goes up through France, it was in Carpatras, and eventually gets to Amsterdam and those kind of places. And his goal, of course, is to raise money, you know, for his community, for his yeshiva, um, even though. He must have been bothered by people saying, I hear all this lush and horror, what's going on? Back and forth, you know. <clears throat> it's like a real problem. And it must have really, uh, it got him depressed. I'll tell you why in a second. And on the other hand, he was a very impressive individual. You can see why he's impressed. First of all, he's a gonadier. Second of all, he came from an aristocratic background. So he knows how to, you know, he wasn't afraid of the rich. And he conduct himself in very a Stadi type style, a classy guy. He was a classy guy, and so um, he raised a good amount of money. What's famous is, It comes to Amsterdam, which would be, mm, I don't know, I don't know which one was richer, Amsterdam or Livorno. They're both rich, <laughs> but you know, the difference is that Amsterdam was newer and had less of a Torah background. They had more of these snotty. Uh, richly rich types who want to run the whole uh, situation, you yeah, classic Spanish Portuguese style, the Muhammad, as they call him. And uh, he came there and he really wowed them. I mean, he blew them away. Uh, this is one of the things I pulled out of the book the pre-Kharash, who at the time I'm talking about would be six, be about 30 years old, 20, 30 years old, peak of his uh years. Um, died around thirty nine so this is ten years earlier my thirty years old he came to amsterdam and they really uh he gave a speech there by the way in spanish in ladino you you know if you want you can it's spanish actually uh it's 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 a sermon morale the fundament the de Fundamento de nostra a a muster sermon morale moral sermon musser schmooze on the Yesotas. Of the Torah, predicatio in our illustrated illustri- congregation, Torah, Talmud, Torah, etc., preached in such a date, Elul, chacham, de solver. You know, uh, for the very chashel rabbi, cheskid zolba. So uh, he gave a speech that blew them away, and uh, they even made a portrait of him, which is one of the things I always think when you can't help but think when pre chodesh, he's one of the rare. Gedolim, do we actually have a picture of? And there, if you go on, yeah, it's Google, but you want the color portrait. I have a book from that I bought really for this reason uh, that came out 20 years ago, something like that, from Professor Richard Cohn, who used to teach at the uh, Hebrew Professor Richard Cohn on uh, 1998. And it's called Jewish Icons, Art and Society in Modern Europe. So he was interested, I don't think he's from. He was interested in portraits of Gedolim as a cultural artifact. What does it tell you about popular culture? You know, in the 1670s, 1800s, early 1900s. Today, we've taken Gedolim portraits like to a new level, but I'm talking about in the old country. You know, things were then. And, you know, which rabbis were actually painted, which rabbis were imaginary painted, and those pictures took off. You and I, for example, will think immediately of the Rambam. You know, that picture of the Rambam ain't the Rambam, but it t- it's certainly taken off. Same thing with pictures of uh, most of the people you see. You know, Rashi or whatever. that what Rashi look like. You know, we don't know. But, you know, the, certain pictures got really uh, cool. Once in a blue mood, you find an actual portrait, including our hero. Maybe he's the most famous. And if you get the book or Google Jewish Icons, Art and Study in Modern Europe by Richard Cohn, you get on the cover the actual color portrait that they painted of Chiski de Silva when he's 30 years old and was hot like a meteor. He was hot. And uh he's young. He's handsome. He's a gonadier. He's super firm. He can speak Gvaldik. You know, he just made a tremendous Rosham. And you see he's got a red turban and an ermine robe. And he's just very cool looking, my goodness. Okay? Super cool looking. You have to get this book just for the cover. Right now, why they made the portrait of him? I know there's a famous story, and I've said it myself sometimes that I saw in a book which was a bio of Ralph Cook uh, written back in the 1960s, um, East Negative where um, of Cook, who must have been uh really taken by this picture, uh, this portrait, by the way, was uh, painted by the Spanish Portuguese community, eventually, it ended up in the hands of the Lehran brothers who I spoke about in one of the podcasts, they were the Frumi Ashkenaz who tried to hold the line in Orsak Judaism in the early 1800s in in Amsterdam. And when he died, it got out there. You know, he he owned it, and then it got out there and got printed and reprinted. But if you get it in the black and white, it's not as cool by a million miles. It's not as cool as the color portrait. I mean, the the pre-class is cool. Portrait, baby. Anyhow, um, Rav Cook said that since he was a Meshulach, because that's what happened, if you're going from Yushalayim, you're raising money for the Yeshiva, you're a Meshulach. Now, this is in the 1600s, it's not a Meshulach like today, you know, they would send gedolim. I mean, the Khido was a Meshulach, you know, the Pre-Chadish is a that kind, Shadar, they call it that time, Shluch So So, uh, it's in the Yari book, which is 10,000 pages wide, on all the Shadars. And uh, so here you have what we would call a up and coming Godalador, no question about it. Coming is a mashalach, And um, um they have a portrait of him. So if Cook opined, or maybe he heard this from somebody, that when you had a Mashulch come from Israel, he's going to go around to all the different communities, especially among Ashkenaz, which the Brichadish did not do, by the way. And how do you know that that a guy who comes and shows up and says, I'm the is the real thing. Maybe he's a faker. You know, uh uh, there's always been a lot of phonies in the from world. So a guy can show up and say, I'm the pre look, I'm wearing a red turban. <laughs> and they'll give me and give me the money you set aside for Eretz Yisrael. So in order to inform the communities, they would paint a portrait and they would make copies of the portrait. And so the local community, you know, in, in Poland or wherever, Germany would have the portrait and they say, you say you're this guy, you don't look like him or you do look like him, you know. I don't know if that's true. I mean, it's, it's very intriguing. But then why don't we have a whole lot of portraits of all the other Shadarim? Which we do not, um, so I don't know. Uh, I know we have one of the prikadosh, and I, to my mind, it's the only one or one of the very few. But it's totally cool looking. Now, when he's in Amsterdam, they were blown away, and uh, it's something very intriguing: the balabata, meaning the richy riches, in Amsterdam. First of all, they gave him money for his, you know, cause. Second of all, listen very closely. He brought along with him his uh, manuscript of what he was working on. So here's a guy that's, that wrote the pre I think the first one was the Ordea. In his 20s, he's like the Shach. The famous pre that we all use now, um, which we'll talk about in a second, he wrote in his 20s, because he's getting this published in Amsterdam approximately the age of 30. So uh, that's wild. Yeah, it's like the Rambam or something. You, 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 you pull off a masterpiece in the 20s uh, and the book got so in other words the richie riches in Amsterdam you say oh you need so much to get this printed Amsterdam no problem so he really blew him away and he had relatives there also so that helped a lot in other words he had rich relatives in Amsterdam and that makes the rich people treat you different you understand you're not just some rabbi coming in like a schlep or a beggar or something like that you're a member of the upper classes who happens to be a big rabbi it's, uh, I can't overemphasize that And they offered him the position to be the rabbi of the Sephardic Spanish-Portuguese community in Amsterdam. Here you are in uh, 1690 or so. Now, uh, as we'll see, he turned it down. But uh, imagine, just like a what if, imagine if he would have said yes. Then that would be amazing because you'd have Amsterdam, which was always famous for being a Class B or Class C Torah learning city. You understand? They had rich Jews there, and the blood is published former publisher, But it's always right. They're learning very shavach. <laughs> you understand? As Amsterdam has always been like that. They're learning very shavach. They might import somebody as a as a rov, but it's a shavach situation. Here you had a guy that could have, rev- I mean, maybe, maybe could have revolutionized the whole business, and you would have had the Sephardic rabbi of Amsterdam, not some loser like Shlomo Yalon these other crypto Sabakians. You would have had Mamish Agadol Hador who's 30 years old, could have gone for another 40 years. So you would have somebody who's up there at the time of the Chacham Svi and those other people who will be fully up to the same level. And he's coming out of 10 years in an educationally Oiz Gehalten yeshiva in Jerusalem, not your typical yeshiva. So he's been exposed to all these advanced ideas of different Maslulim and this, that, and the other. Uh, He could have possibly made a fantastic yeshiva in Amsterdam And revolutionized the Sephardim, which did not happen. Now, in the end, he turned it down. Why did he turn it down? It's a fascinating story. He was a Meshulach. So eventually he left. But they offered him a job. Well, who else was a Meshulach like him, but, uh, you know, 80 years later or so? And the answer is the Chidov. The Chidov has a, a travelogue called Magal Tov in which he has diary notes of his journeys collecting money, just like the Prichotish did, except that the Chidot went wider, you know. He went to different communities, Ashkenaz as well as Sephardim, all over the place. And he's very talkative. And, uh, you know, he's a Chidot, so, you know, he assigned everything else. He's very talkative. And he's talking, in Am- so he's visiting Amsterdam or the Hague in the 1778 so that's really, uh, what, 80 years later after we're talking about? 90 years later. 90 years later. And the locals are telling him the local lore. And they're talking to him about the, why the pre back in 1689, 1690, didn't take the job because they offered it to him. And it's a fascinating story. Um, I'm just debating with myself whether to read it in English or Hebrew because um, there is a guy in England... Who translated the Magal Tov into English? You you miss the the uh, the wonderful Hebraisms, but maybe it'll be easier for my audience, or maybe I'll switch back and forth. Uh, I'm reading right now from the diaries of the Chida, the Magal Tov in English, uh, by somebody from Gateshead wrote, and he says that now this is the Chida in uh, Amsterdam or the Hague nearby in 1778, long after pre time, and he says a certain Rabbi Moldola came over to here to visit with me, and uh, he told me the following. So he said, I'm telling you the local lore. When the, I'm reading in English now, but like I say, I may switch to Hebrew. When the pre was in Amsterdam, Rabbi Abuav, who was the Rav, was a very old man, and the Kehila wanted him to, uh, to, to act as their Rav, meaning the Kehila leaders, the Mahamad, went to the pre who I told you blew him away, and said, so we want to offer you the position of rabbi here. The old rab retaining the honor of his title, which would pass to him on his death. So in other words, we already have a Rob, but he's like very old. And so you'll be what we call acting, you'll be vice president. And when the time comes, you'll be president, you'll be good to The, the chido, I'm sorry, the chido relates, or was told, that our hero, our hero, the told the richly riches, he didn't want to accept gifts, so the community had to pay him a proper salary. So that's just very interesting. Actually, sure you come from rich background. I want to be the type of rabbi that doesn't take any money for weddings, bar mitzvahs, funerals, and so forth. But in order for that to happen, you have to give me a big salary. Okay, so he's talking right away like a businessman. In addition, he didn't want to be responsible to the men of the Mahamad in any matter concerning the application of the law. You know what that means? In the Spanish Portuguese community, the 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 board of directors, the Mahamad. They ain't supposed to uh give the final okay or not okay or anything. That's how it ran with uh, Nieto and with Manasha Ben Israel and all these other guys. But he doesn't want to be when it comes to Halocha, he doesn't want to be subservient to anybody. Um Okay? So right off the bat, you were dealing with a guy from uh upper class well-to-do background. He's not he he lays down his conditions. What's shocking is they said yes. They replied they accept in any manner, touching the law, they would not have the right to stand against him, Meaning, in politics, we still have the final say. But if it's halacha, fine, you're in charge. And in the matter of salary, they would increase it, but only to double what the current rabbi is getting, which wasn't what he asked for. So he insisted on a thousand tuckets. So basically he said like this, my way to highway. (laughs) Here you have salary negotiations in the 17th century. The men of the bed deliberated on the matter, and they agreed. They gave him what he asked for, and they came to tell him. So in other words, they spend a week, and after discussing it back and forth, they say, this guy is so hot, he's worth the money, okay? Um, however, when they came to tell him, they thought he'd grab it. He said, I still want to think about it. The following Sunday, he went to the Ma'mad and says, I'm turning it down, okay? I'm turning it down. Now, let me see if I can find it in in Hebrew. This is totally cool. Um, and he's saying like this. So the men of the Ma'amad started arguing. They said, don't turn us down. We offered you what you want. If this is true, I see trouble. Then here is how I see the, the scenario unfolding. I'm gonna call the all the the voting members, and I'll tell everybody that I've been accepted as a rabbi. Vyom Gimel and the following um Tuesday, leboker, the Shabbas, I'll I'll go and visit everybody as is the um style in those days, you know, to visit the uh, members of the board. That was the protocol. The Shabbos Edrosh, this coming Shabbos, I'll give my first Rush as Rabbi yom Echad, and the following Sunday, lahem I'll declare I'm now the no, i Am the Rabbi now. And then I have to tell it like it is. You see, if I'm a Musholach, I'm just here to raise money. I don't get into your personal lives, whether you're keeping Shabbos right, whether you're keeping Gilarai Shricha Dhamma But if I'm the rough here, then I have to do that. For Yeshub me darkamara. And I'm going to have to start giving Musa to tell them that they have to do chuba. And first, I'm going to tell the board of directors, the, the chairman of the board, <laughs> I'm going to say, You have two mistresses at home, you, Mr. Big Shot, you know, two uh, shixes in the house, and you got to get thrown out of the house. She so will see him. But, and you're not going like that. And I'm going to have to tell. The second guy on the board of directors, something similar. In other words, if you really want me of a rav, there's no bull, you know. <laughs> I'm gonna call it like I see it. Because <laughs> I don't want to burn for you. I want to say myself. I don't want to burn for you. If I'm the rav now, I'm responsible for the conduct of the community. So if this guy's doing this in Kasherus and that guy's doing that in Gilarias and the other guy's doing it in money and this and that and the other, I gotta call it like I see it. <laughs> Averus Mufursamas. And I have to tell the truth, which is all you guys are drowning in mud of Averos Mufursamas. For what that's why I told you, Shukhalasis Dentural Lazaki Gotara call me, call him a That's why I asked for um freedom of the pulpit, to call it like I see it. And if somebody doesn't listen to me, I'm gonna cuss him out and all the rest of it. That is the job of a rogue. Over, but then I can see what's going to happen. What's going to happen is, Do you guys are going to freak out and form a conspiracy against me? And you'll figure some way to fire me and kick me out of the job. And who knows what will happen? Right? Do you really want to get rid of all the toma here in your community? you really willing to And you're really willing to turn 180 degrees? Then, okay, but are you really willing to accept that? And I want plenty of time on my schedule for sitting and learning. And that'll set an example for others. Right? And then you'll be be really mezaka. But that's not going to happen. Let's cut the baloney you Guys are not going to do that, you're not going to turn over your lifestyle. You're a bunch of rich millionaires who like the Gashmias, um, and you also like your what shall I say? You like your luxuries, your affairs. Shame. You are really interested in shame, in in um, what's right, Covet. you know, prestige. And what you really want is. The rabbi should just get off your back, you know, and, and you want to conduct your lives the way you want to do it. Believe mocha klal without anybody saying anything. So in other words, you know the old line, don't talk about Shabbos, don't talk about Kachos, don't talk about this, talk about Judaism. He said, I'm not that kind of rabbi. is not to Even though you did agree to give me a big salary, this, when I said I want complete freedom of the pulpit and to paskin as, and call it as I see it, I see you didn't understand me. So, do you really want me as a rabbi? Notice, are you willing to commit yourself to this? And when the board of directors heard this, they said, you know, you are right. <laughs> I have to admit, you are right. It just won't work out. That's the story of Rabbi Nabal Batim. He turned out a rich situation because he said, you know, now, was he right? Was he wrong? I mean, he was the one, you know, he, he was the man on the spot. He called it the way he called it. To my mind, maybe he could have, you know, been more diplomatic, and if he would have set up a yeshiva, that would—you know—who knows? Uh, but this is the way. This is the famous story about him. I'm just telling you. You can't ever talk about the prekash without knowing that story. Now, um but he—you know—let's put it this way. You see, unfortunately, he was a man of conscience. <laughs> Otherwise, he could have had a covered malachim. And uh, it's just interesting. Now, as I said before. His job was to raise money for the yeshiva. But I think, as best as I can tell, he saw the whole thing falling apart in Machlokas. And it did fall apart. But he found another family, Pereira, I think in Amsterdam, Taka. And this family, <laughs> like I said before, was partially Sabbathian, part not Sabbathian, but he wowed them. And he got them to contribute like millions standard of that time, 20,000 ducats, uh, to set up his own yeshiva, uh, which he would call Beis Yaakov. I would, I would refer to as Beis Yaakov B, as opposed to Beis Yaakov A. So the historians will tell you the first one's called Beis Yaakov Vega because it was bankrolled by the Vega family, I think from Livorno. And this would be Beis Yaakov B, by the Pereira family in, in uh, Amsterdam. The key point being like this, this is totally under our hero's control. So, basically, <laughs> something like this happened in the history of Near Israel, by the way, but I won't go to that uh you know, instead of simply concentrating on getting the money for your for the institution that sent you, which he did also on the side, he got as, as, as significant amount of money as the Karen Kayamas you know live off the interest for a second yeshiva, with the hill run himself, so ah, he was only thirty years old well, big deal, big deal, he was a hot shot. He was a dear. He was a genius. And there was no question he could do it. And that's what happened. He eventually moved back to Yerushalayim. Uh, as they say, the first yeshiva was falling apart. So I don't know what happened with the money that came in for them. from Machlokis. But his yeshiva didn't. Until he died. So if you're living in the 1690s. Which is the last decade of his life. If you're in 1690s, the end of the 17th century. Yushalayim, It's a very interesting situation. Because he sent Adam a sholuch, he came back with the money. He did. I just want to be clear about that. Obviously, he's honest. But he also came back, you know, with a second amount of money, which is for my own yeshiva. I'm setting one out myself. Okay? Now, what's interesting is, by this time, he had published, if you follow it all back and forth, what so I'm talking about, it, while he was in Amsterdam and making such a smash hit, so he got them to pay for the publishing of his book, pre I think, on idea, I believe. And um, and the book immediately hit the stands. It was published in the form of a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. You know, that Shulchan Aruch in the middle and the stuff on the side. His stuff on the side. And remember, it's the late 1600s, so that is what people were doing. This is the time in history the Muggan Avram came out. <coughs> excuse me. You know, with the Shulchan Aruch and the Muggan Avram around it. The Taz came out, the Shulchan Aruch with the Taz around it. Uh, you know, the, the shach, so forth. that was the style. So he's following the style of writing in the form of and Shukrach, even though it doesn't have to actually be that, but that's the principle of organization, okay? But there's a big difference, and the difference is his style, because he uh, came across as a personification of a certain type of godel of a very controversial nature, totally within the Torah framework, and that is he called it the way he saw it, and let the chips fall where they may, and if I think somebody's wrong, it could be Rashi, Tosas, the Rajma, certainly the tour, certainly Base Yosef, the Akronim. if they got it wrong, if they screwed up, as he would say, Charlie Murray uses such Lashonas, they messed up, they screwed up, they got this wrong, they forgot what they wrote themselves, and so on and so forth. He, you know, he says it. He calls it the way he sees it. He's a little bit like the rivet style, you understand? Know? They're very sharp. And this became famous with the with the, with the the Pre-Chaddish style. Now, um, this, what's the shot? First of all, he learned in this Sephardic way in the, especially in the Yeshiva Beit Yaakov in the 1680s, um, and, and this is, now I'm giving you my understanding, my interpretation in the, in the Kampantan way, you know, Dark Yegumar, it's pretty clear to me which means the old Spanish Pilpul of once upon a time. Iyun. Hainu. I learned the Gemara. Now, we're talking about going through Olshas and everything, obviously. Babu, you me the whole business. I learned the Gemara myself without Rashi, without Tosas. I work it through, through Yagia, and I come up with my interpretation. You know, and I have a Harusa, and we bang it off each other, and so forth. Now, after that, I read Rashi. And after that, I read Tosas. You know what I'm saying. And then I see if Rashi makes sense to me. You hear what I just told you? Does Rashi make sense to me after I did it? That's the dark Agamore That's the Kampantan system. Not the way you and I usually learn it, which is you learning more. Let's, let's see what Rashi says. That becomes the way. And everything else is built around that. But rather, you learn the more in and of itself without any more harshness at all. And then you apply Rashi, and then you apply Tozas and then you apply the others. Okay? So that gives you a very... So first of all, that's a tremendous Yagiyah, the number one. Second of all, if if you're a genius and you can pull it off, then you so say I am entitled to an opinion. Because I've learned everything from scratch, from bottom up. You understand? I mean, I went through the whole business from bottom up, which he did. I'll say it again. He was the real thing. So he learned this way. He's very, very thorough. And he, you know, once he finished the shots that way, then went they went to Rashi that way, the to Tosa that way. The Rambam, the Torah, the Shulchan Aruch, Yosef Karo, the Beis Yosef, plus the Raja, whatever it was shown were published at that time, the Ritva, and so forth and so on. But he says, like this I am entitled to an opinion. I worked it through, and from a strictly um, purely uh, intellectual point of view, he's right. Um, but here we have a wonderful example historically of the clashes, the existential tensions, as I call it between a purely intellectual view on the one hand and the sociological reality of the Torah world and tradition on the other. Uh, here, let me have to stop this for a second. Okay, I just switched tapes here. Um, how should I put this? Uh, from its, from a purely intellectual point of view, what is my job as a Jew and yours? And the answer is to plunge and learn the whole Torah uh, path and uh, I'm talking about certainly the, the Chazals. And then, I guess the them with something like that. It's tricky. Uh, you'll see what I mean. But learn everything thoroughly. And then once I do, that's my job. But once I do, to conduct myself halachically in the base of what I worked out myself. Provided I'm a bar hockey. So if I'm a big Tom i and a genius and blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? So if I have a question, what should I do in Hillel or anything else. Cautious. I don't go and say, what did the others say? I say, how, is it, how have I worked it out? You understand? Now, you can't ignore what the others say. But suppose I worked out the Gemara, let's just say, and the Suggia, well, let's say it was a real hot shot. And I was with a bunch of gabrus all were hot shots. So it's a heady experience. It's like being a Talmud of Chaim Brisker in the 1870s something like that, you know? And so I have a heady experience. And, wow. We mama's got Clark kind of this, uh, but the mum doesn't poskin this way, or the Beis Yosef doesn't Poskin. What? Well, they're wrong. <laughs> Listen, the mechilas kvodim. They're wrong. I just you and I just went through all this from top to bottom, in and out, and this is the way the Mahalach works. I don't know why they said that, but it just it it doesn't work. Now a typical way is to say it like this, and we see this all the time. I look at a certain Savara, it don't make no sense to me. But, okay, you know, if the Rishonim say it and the Achronim say it ends up in the Shulchan Aruch and the Shach and Taz, I guess that's what we go with. That's the usual way of doing it, right? Agree? That's the usual way of doing it. You just better get used to learning this far. What if, But what if somebody, like I say before, who's not a phony at all, and is a Bar-Hachi, works out, he said this is just wrong. It's <laughs> just wrong. You get it? Um, and the Machaba here forgot what he himself said somewhere else, and he just messed up. And Roller, this is the din. Well, from the point of view of pure conscience, my responsibility is to follow what I see, England, Dino, Mashayna, Rose. And you call it like you see it, like I said before, let justice be done, though the heavens fall. And how can everybody else be wrong? What can I tell you, Abosai? Did you so wrong? And I'm explaining why I'm saying it. I'm not saying, you know, Kablu, Daiti. I'm telling you why I'm saying it. Here's my argument. So, did I do something wrong? I did something that's improper. You get it? That's one way of looking at the at the, at the the ledger. The other side of the ledger is, who the heck are you to come and criticize Rashi? Who are you, the heck are you to come and criticize whoever? You get it? Now, in the history of Judaism, it comes and goes. Like, when the briskers came along, and they came with their analysis, directly, indirectly, it was a Mavata, but a lot of them before them said, you know, and I know it. You get it? And it's like the idea, that's the old style of learning, but we're now in a Higher levels. They don't come out and say that, you know, the Pnei Yeshua got it wrong or something like that. But, you know, you it, you leave with that attitude. Sometimes you can get away, but sometimes you not get away with it. Um, when the Chazanish said that you have to double all the shurim, the other guy, what's his name, Mikhaim Noah, said, how can you say all the others are wrong? Sometimes it goes and sometimes it doesn't go. Except the Chazanish is usually Machmir and the Prechadish is usually Mikkel. Uh, <clears throat> so when he published his book, and remember he was in his 20s, and he was a hotshot. I mean, in the best possible sense of the word. And his whole background was a hotshot background. And he was the best guy in the yeshiva. And he was a genius. And so on and so forth. So he ends up uh, writing, like the marshal or one of these other. There are certain types uh, in which you simply say, this: this is how I see it. So it reminds us very much of the Vilna you know. Um, but the Vilna never published it. The Biura Agro post published after his death. Here's somebody published it before he's 30 years old. Okay? And he's basically saying like this. This is the way it is. Of course, now, mind you, he's not so arrogant as say, Kablu died to all the rest He's just saying like this. I'm putting it out there for you. In my opinion, based on the following arguments, I think that they're wrong here and wrong there. And this is the way it should go. All I can tell you is, he called it like he said, he shot uh, arrows right and left. And the Moskiel in the 19th century used to like to uh, collect it all. Uh, Here's uh, the Roberts that from his... And he says uh in the beginning of the of this uh uh um uh, is a pierce on the shokon but it's not a pierce exactly shokar it's a critical on appearance lilchom milchames kova ne craci but sova bahbi bakashti yotsy fashem li os naimlishmobi naimlerospra easi in other words I know I'm smart and it's not a boast you know no here's a guy that's that learned twenty four seven I just want to be clear about that. So I know their bonsham give me a cup. I went through all this stuff. It came out Karen obviously Hinachti. And I did with comprehensive research. I went all, you know, I went through all this firm. Okay. Um and he says over here, um uh, you know, I I hold from the Shokanark and all the rest of it. Milvad Tsas tmios. Malayus Ratovas, except when there are weird things in there in the Shokunarch, I shall rushunam Matosi, Vegam Lachronim, Harik, Vaharab uh Meharama, Aleyam hinosi. I went to purify what they said, Vihasagas Nikbodis Alemisarti, and I have strong tiners on them, and I'm gonna show you where. Obamako shade Vyosheswaris, Flachrio Ani, Besiade Shmati, and when they bring, you know, a Yeshumram and all I I Paskin which one it is. But again, it's always what the, I'm giving the reasons why. If they bring a das yohad, I say whether it's um, <coughs> to or not. And then, of course, he, he goes through the whole Shulchan on the Yerdea. Now, um, let's put it this way. Uh, he, like I said before, was very uh, unrestrained in his language, shall we say. <laughs> Um, uh, loke beis yosef, ain't lashkiach <laughs> uh, b'mashapasik beis <laughs> yosef. Vishenela me ain of adinim Beis yosef messed up over here because he forgot what he beis yosef forgot what he wrote somewhere else. Whoa, right? In other words, you're not saying he made a mistake. You're saying he just had a bad. Day. You're, you're saying beis yosef had a bad day, right? And v'gam eladivri neviyosheim on Rashi of all places, right? He says ain't davar mechubarim v'klameimred. The Hahib Al Dusia Whoa. You're saying this is something Rashid said when he was a kid. That that's why he's dumb. Really? Who the heck are you? You see, so he didn't the, i want to repeat, he was a from guy. Okay? And Rabed Tom and Derritosis Mugung, Bain Bar Makonim, the Rajbah, Yesh Litmosha Batorisobai Scutzer Pasak Hebekmash Matorosa Aruch, and the tour about involved, right and left, right? So in other words, he, you know, was the bull who came and, and broke all the china in the china shop. Okay? And especially, by the way, Bishlam, if you tell me he's machwer, they're makel, whatever. But he's makel with their machmer. Okay? And so, uh, and, and by the way, he says, that uh, you should keep a minig, in the chummers in Jordaea. That's where they deliberately said they're making some kind of a siog, a minig. But the menhagim that I'm looking at are just wrong, okay? And the only person who would disagree with what I'm saying is somebody who's stubborn and dumb, and so on and so forth. And what's really funny is, get you know, the marshal writes like this, but he writes this on the marshal, right? He says, "Who ikesh uh, the Ravi's is, you know, He's accusing the rabbi and the Marshal of just quoting things by heart and not getting, you know, looking inside of the scene. All I can tell you is he dropped bombs to the right, he dropped bombs to the left. That's who it was. And um, now, l- let's put it this way. The book didn't get out totally overnight, but in some places it did. And this led to a very famous incident, uh, which caused him a lot of Agma Because I don't think he realized living in his hot house super yeshiva environment, I don't think it was out there in the real world. And you know, Yerushalayim is like a bubble, get it? where he was living. And you know, every day was in base matters talking with these guys and they were hot stuff. And these just like I say, they call it like they see it, and they didn't realize that out in the regular world. You you run into the sociological sociological realities. We don't relate to Roshonim and Great Achronim this way. Who the heck are you? You understand? And um you better and, and all these um Chutzbedikul are uh, are completely objectionable. And it's very famous in the it's always brought down in the bios. Uh, I have in front of me the Chubas Ginas Rodin. So that's from the chief rabbi of at that time, right? Uh, Al Rama And and uh, it's very chashav a sefer. You know, the Shalat Seder was given run and one of them is uh, in in Chelik. Give them like this Chelik base. Al haskama shenasi b'Mitzrayim shelo l'ilmun b'sefer This is actually funny. So this is a chashav a Sephardi rabbi, the chief rabbi of Egypt uh, at a time when they had some big rabbis over there, and. He's describing the case. Uvdahavi Bahamid Sibra Bonan, Dabhariftuba. It happened there was a certain Rav who was Khariftuba, big Kharif. That's our hero. But Raised him Raskas and the Arasa was boiling in him, so he was hot stuff. And he in other words, and he was um what's the right word, enthusiastic for his opinions. The Khibir saf Ratur Yaradeya pre Khadash. The Yishba Khadushim Rabbim of Albu Bakias. And there's no question that he has a lot of khadushim that's true, and Pilbim B'giyas, and it's like a little bit of a put-down. We obviously don't have to follow what he says. But it is useful as a cheater book. It is <laughs> like a certain put-down. It helps us with the, saves us the Torah having to look around. Okay, fine. So notice it's a useful saver. So there's no question that the guy wrote a chash of a saver, but the knows we know what to do, but it's an interesting saver. We don't rely on him. shot this and if we saw that he has said something which is good then we'll accept it. and if not, we don't. It's just a brand new saver that showed up. Vayikav O'Sein when the book hit Egypt, and mind you, he published it when it was in Amsterdam, but it already was sold by the booksellers that reached Egypt before he did. Over my vorm, we went through a couple pages. And we saw he has a big mouth to speak. People we live by. He has no respect. And the Beis Yosef that we all rely upon is the Amuda Talmud, Kosovo Sitna. He writes critically, Sitno is worse. He treats the Beis Yosef like he was some uh, fifth grader. You know, in other words, you got this wrong, you had a bad day, you forgot what you wrote yourself, you had a, a memory lapse. You know, who are you talking about? the V'afroach, and this guy who's a chick that, that didn't open his eyes, meaning he's a twenty-something year old, you know, he's like a brand new chick. And he's tying that the base Yosef, a Almutar, because I told you the our hero was a, a Mako. Uh but he besprised him Dvarov. So when this book hit the stand, so you can just imagine here you're in Egypt, like Alexandria in the sixteen nineties, and you know, you go to your local farm store, um, <laughs> uh, they said, this brand new thing on, on uh, like a pierce on the Shulchan Aruch. Oh, that's interesting. And they start going through and they say, what the heck? So, they made a whole taram with the Vada Rabbonim, and they got everybody here. The Vada Rabbonim plus visiting rabbis from elsewhere. They wanted to crush him. So what happened was, obviously, as, as happens, two factions formed. One would have, like, put him in here and kill him. And the other one said, no, 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 don't do that. Below, but And the beings fired him, so they said, let's do the middle. You know, let's do the middle. Not this team, not this team, the middle. Certainly, you're not going to go. I mean, they wanted to beat him up. He said, if he comes to Egypt, we'll beat him up. You know, give him Malkus or something like that. No, we're not going to do that. And not to be pogey in his Not to insult him. But we, the Vader Abunim, should meet with him when he comes to Egypt. In closed session. And give him Musr. And that's what we did. So in those our hero returning back from what he considered a triumphant journey, where he raised a lot of money and so forth. Moving back to Israel and stopping in Egypt on the way home. This would be like 1692, whatever. Uh, he lands in Egypt, and he said, well, there's a, there's a message from you for the which he goes and meets with down, and boy, they have it out with him. But his not still, and he apologized. And he felt bad about it. So, if this is true, maybe our Machabra I guess, ooh, maybe I went too far. You know, I shot my mouth off. Maybe I went too far. Well, if in order to be maf- to appease the team that wanted to kill him or beat him up, also the compromise resolution of the was that all copies of this book should be put in Geniza, you know, put under a building. But God, so, I'll tell you the truth. I was reminded of this pre story because of the Walder. Although, of course, there's no comparison one to the other. But it's the, it's the, here you have it in the 17th century. Is a question. The guy said something, um, the pre said something objectionable, which he did. Does this mean you should ban the book? It's, a, it's an old issue in the history of Jewish people. The God's abris al they made like an official... Uh haram of thevada Shalo sayallah can't read any of his uh, uh, can't read this book the this known book that was published the precotting urdea Locri a very lowcrious kebab. you can't read it at all because um uh, now remember this is the seventeenth uh, century so in other words, they can make a rules for egypt they can't make a rules for elsewhere, but they can make up rules for egypt and they wrote out this uh, whole resolution, and all the Vada Rabbanim signed it. And in addition, other Chasha Rabbanim who happened to be visiting through Egypt, they also signed it. For example, we have some Rabbanim from Hebron, happened to be in Egypt. We asked him to sign it this is so interesting. The Chevron uh, Sfardi Rabbi says, "Listen, we don't want to make trouble. So, out of respect for the Vada Rabbanim of Egypt, we'll sign it of in but we don't accept it. We are not going to say in Eretz Yisrael. They remember, our hero lived in Israel. Yushalayim and Chevron. They knew him. They had tremendous respect for him, even with the sharp Lashonas. And so they're saying, we're not accept. We we agree to sign. How should I put it?" That this haskama should work in Egypt. We are not agreeing that it should apply in Israel. When we go back to Israel, we will use the safe. We're not undertaking to ban it. Uh, and so these two rabbis of Hebron move back to Israel not long after this this is in the 1690s um, so not long after this he died our hero died okay uh, like a year later at a very young age now I'm sure people say this see he did cause, you know, he was punished you know that kind of way of doing it which you never know because let's put it this way if he was a and he died young you say oh I don't know why but if he did something that you know sounds objectionable so now I know why nobody knows why But the fact is, he died not long after this. Um, As far as we know, he died from a a mageif or something like that. But maybe, maybe he had a tremendous agmes Nevis from the whole parsha. Could be, could be. Anyway, listen to this. Uh, That the author died. All of a sudden, a change of mood. The anti-team was still stark. But many people in egypt itself said i want to see the <laughs> i want to see what his tainas are you get it in other words there's a tremendous lumpness in it i know he said some stupid things there about the uh, rashi you know you know i get that but you know the old line we'll do like acher and the other guy and what's it called the and Rameir. the good part will take the bad part not you know like that uh kalsa they they're yearning to learn this safer, they figured it will be of great use. And they're asking me, as the chief rabbi of Egypt, the Guinness Rodham, can we revoke the ban? I said before, we'll treat it, you know, the good part like a Rimon, you know, that we'll throw away the lashonas that he criticized, other will ignore, but the Tyra the part, we want to see. <laughs> right, and he himself, the preacher, said in his hakdama that you know I'm not saying you should go by what I said. I'm just throwing this out as my suggestion. You know, in other words, examine yourself, O oh reader. My arguments on the different halachas of yerida and whatever sounds good to you, follow. And it whatever it doesn't, don't. And it is true that when he was here, we had the meeting with the Vada Rabbanim, he apologized, right? I was there. So the question now, which was the hot button question in Egypt, after 1695 is, can the Cherem be revoked? In other words, by revoking the Cherem, are you insulting the memories of the people he so viciously criticized, or not? Okay. And if you hold that it is possible to be Mater this, Should we consult? Do we, have to, do we have to get the agreement of the anti team that wanted to beat him up? Or can we just do it like that? Should we consult? And do we have to talk to the Israelis and so on and so forth? Okay, um, and when I saw it, it was such a big tumult here in Egypt, the Chibitz Ross and Talmud and a lot of Talmudic Chachamim were like really yearning. You know how it goes. Once you declare a Book Oser, everybody wants to read it, right? My good said basically did him a big favor by putting in Cher, because now everybody wants to wants to read it. Okay. Although you see they were firm enough not to do without being Mate the Kerum. And I'm looking for a header, and he finds one. I'm not gonna read the whole Chuba. Uh, he finds one. If you're interested in this, it's in Yerodea, Claul Gimel Simen uh Klaal Gimel Simon Gimel. Uh has his own system. But it's in the part three, three. Okay? Uh all which shows you what a big splash he made, Le Tovalera. Meaning you you can understand the the, um, the the reaction, but you see at the same time, they also I guess, but the guy's a genius, you know? He was a gun under and nobody questioned let me put it this way nobody said he's evil, they just I guess he lack a judgment. You understand what I'm saying? They didn't, nobody say he didn't have arrogance as something like that. It's a lack of judgment. Now it's a certain intellectual arrogance, but not the guy that we find objectionable. I think it's a very fascinating story. (laughs) Now, the funny part goes like this. And this is famous from um, the Chidah's Shema Gedolim. If you look in the Shema Gedolim, you know, obviously, he has a a whole part about uh, Chizki de Silva, about our hero, okay? And the Chidah, now I want you to understand, during the few years that he ran the yeshiva of his own, the Chidah's grandfather was a Talmud of his. So he's got, you know, What's the right skin in the game, whatever the expression is? And he says over here, Chiske uh, de Silva in the Shema Gedolim, anybody reads this savor sees how big he was. Uh, and I heard from the elders, you know, this is a generation or two later, how great he was. Uh, and there's a funny story here. He says, in addition to all this, and remember, he died, uh, let me see now, I think he died at 36, if he died in 1695. That's really a short life. So he wrote, um, this is for Noah Shari, Sheetus Batalman bakdomas Arizal. He wrote a Kabbalistic, the guy was a genius, obviously. He wrote, uh, Kabbalistic Shittim so to speak, on Shas, or at least some acceptus. <laughs> you get it? Uh, it's a different way based on Arizalism. It's just a different way of learning. Let's put it this way. Shnayim Mokzin You dumbbell, you think it's talking about two people holding on to a talus? Shnayim in the face, you know, the Sitra achra and the Tzad is on the talis. You know, you see that way of, of, of learning. it. our Babas and the oh boy, you talk about the Mazikim, you know. It's a different way of learning. But he didn't want it to be published, uh, as is true of of the uh, uh, the famous Kabbalists, you know. And uh, so he he had in his last will and testament, he died young, uh, that they should be buried. And the the Chevra screwed up because they not only buried the stuff he said to bury, but they also buried some stuff that he didn't say to bury, which was the pre shabis. Shabbos. So it's gone. Um, and then he quotes the, the, what do you call it? He quotes um, the story about the harem that I just told you about in Egypt. And then the chidah himself, okay, says, <speaking in Spanish> I can show you that mid hashamayim, they backed the pre Min shamayim You see, the B'chadish was confirmed. Not that we agree with his ins- insults, you know, and so forth. That part not. But the Gvaldic nature of the safer, right? Uh, min ha-shamayim was confirmed. How so? shachar <laughs> dorahu Because when the generation of the Guinness Svaradim died out, so notice when you get to the early 1700s, and, the, and all the guys that were involved in the controversy I just told you about a few minutes ago in Egypt, got old and died, this um, Ador, So who became the next chief rabbi of Egypt? Um, a Talmud of the Pre-Khadash. <laughs> Marash al-Gazi. Um, Shlom al-Gazi. Now, who he describes as, Mofis, the reign of Rabba Chassid, who was a gonad during the Chassid also. Okay? so, <laughs> all these guys that just came out with the cherim against the pre the next rav who became the rav in Egypt for 45 years was a talmud of the pre v'chol haros of al-das rabba pre and for those 45 years he always passed in front of the pre so min haShamayim, this is what the chidah is saying you see that the pre was confirmed because the place of his biggest opposition ended up being ruled rabbinically by somebody who always passed like the pre okay and he's got other reasons and things like that. So this is part of the very famous story. Now, how and when exactly he died, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Like I said before, it doesn't surprise me that they had and all the time in Turkish Palestine and those places, in Salonika, Egypt, because the public health just was non-existent. They got the medicine all wrong and whatever. That's how it was. Uh, so, you know, if he died at a young age, it must be from this. It's interesting to speculate, you know, interesting to speculate, did he die from uh, from psychological embarrassment, you know what I mean, like, when he had this session in Egypt, may- maybe it brought him down to earth, I don't know, you know, maybe brought him down to earth and said, boy, I went too far. Um, all I know is that uh, the story is he died, um, l- let me put it this way, his young death prevented something very interesting. Because I think the pre is somebody we always hear the name. But, you know, once in a while you learn it, this, that, and the other. You know, from time to time. I, I know a few of them, you know, with the, with the uh, you know, Chol of Stam And, you know, a few things like that. You know, he's the one of Hanukkah that says for the uh, the first day is for the victory of the Greeks. Well, there's a couple of pre out there that are fairly well known. But mostly it's some nitty-gritty stuff in the other day in Ur-Chayim. His plan, without question, was to write the peerish on the whole Shulchan Aruch. So if he would have lived longer there's no question in my mind the idea was that you'd have a comp- comprehensive commentary on Yerdei or Chaim, Evanezer and uh, Cheshul Mishpat and then that would be an entire way of learning Shulchan Aruch. of course it would be a kind of anti-Shulchan Aruch way meaning you'd see what the Shulchan Aruch says and then you look at the guy on the side and he said, well here the Shulchan is wrong here the Shulchan is right here the Ramah is wrong, here the Ramah is right. I mean, that's who he was. Now, mind you, with the argumentation, not just Stamazar, you know, the Ramah messed up here, and he'd tell you why, you know? So, again, it's not just Kablu Daiti, it's, you know, I'm like a, 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 a totem, you just have to listen to what he says, an oracle, but I'm giving the arguments. And it would have been an extremely interesting phenomenon because it would end up, I don't know, uh, He'd be, he'd be the POSIK at the end. Uh, that's what it seems like. you would be the POSIK. You'd look at the Shulchan Aruch only to see the principal organization, but you want to know the bottom line, you'd look at the guy on the side, which would be the Prechadish. Now, uh, had he finished the whole Dal Kalki Shulchan Aruch, there's no question in my mind that you would, would have some editions of the Shulchan Aruch published just with the Prechadish, you know, on both sides. On both sides. And uh, that just would have been very interesting. It's... I don't know how to put it. Imagine there was a a Bura or Orkha Shokan who are two very, very different very different than the pre But you know, everybody knows today you don't look at the Aruch and Paskin. You look at the people on the side, right? The Mafarsham. Uh whether it's the people original the original Aruch or the later postkin, to use a simple language you say get the, the get the Piske Chubas, you know, that kind of thing. Right dark Chuba your day, whatever it is you don't just simply go with the B'chamid Ramah. Uh, he would have advanced that process long ago and uh, he, he'd be a household word. His young death, they say he was writing, he died while he was writing at Hilchah Aguna, which is, you know, his stuff on Aguna, you know, in Ebenezer, um, prevented that from happening. And instead, the pre became an achron You understand? An achron So perhaps his... Uh, attempt to really take it to the extreme level, prevent, I don't know, you, you hear where I'm coming from this, right? But it comes across a very, very interesting individual. Uh, I'll tell you again, he had a son who was a Tom Chacham, but was a doctor. So the pre Khanish ain't the, the typical, you know, a Sephardi rabbi. rabbi. Um, it, it definitely was, it, it, clear to me he had money, and he was very classy, you understand? You see the way he handled the Balabata in Amsterdam. You know he he is a kavod Torah place. Uh, that's that's who he was. Now what's interesting, of course, is that uh, in Egypt they simply said, "We'll put you in Chiram." But a generation later or two, the famous Or Hachaim, Benatar, in, in Morocco, uh, wrote a uh, uh, sefer to slug up the prechadash, which is totally fine. I mean, that's the way to do it. You're not calling anybody names. You, you're you're trying to defend the Mechaber and the Ramal, particularly mechaber, against the kashas of the pre That's the pre-Torah I'm talking about, right? If you get to say pre he says, he said that's, the, you know, I wrote it to defend against the, um, the what he called call it? Uh, Against the, you know, the the khalish the, the Okay? Uh, he has a fancy flowery introduction to it, about four rivers and all that stuff. But, uh, you know... <laughs> Han uh I'm going against the Hideel the guy who was chad and kal, you know who was sharp but kal whatever it's it's really to defend the uh the the uh classic against the attacks of the precottsh, which is totally fine. that's great that's the darker Shul Torah. you see it's the darker Shul Torah. and there's old stories I don't know if they're true or not that. The Ur-Chayim went, you know, the pre died in Yerushalayim, he's buried in Har- Not a, It's not a big grave, I've seen a photo of it, but, you know, it's there. And, of course, the Ur-Chayim eventually made it to Yerushalayim, didn't live long there. And uh, they say he went, the, the story goes <laughs> that when the Orachaim HaKadosh, Chaim Benatar, came to Yerushalayim with his Talmudim and all the rest of it, they showed him the pre thing, and he went and spent a lot of time there in solitude. You get it? So who knows what was going on was he saying, I busted you, or was he saying the opposite? He said, I apologize for criticizing you. You know, he was a big makobol of so I apologize for criticizing I don't know. This is, these are the romantic stories of a higher level of the elites. Uh, we can only look at it from afar. Uh, but it's very, very interesting. But the bottom line is, if this is interesting to you at all, and I don't know who's listening, some yes, some no, if this is interesting to you at all, then what you want to do is uh, you want to do the and Rama or something. Let's say, for example, Purim is coming on. I'm just making this up. Purim is around the corner. So, Hilchus Megillah, you know, that's not too long. So, you do uh, you do the and Rama. Don't do the other stuff. Don't do the Bura, the Shak the Ta, you know, the Mogan Avram and so forth. Don't do that. Um, that Well, I should take that back. You can do the Mogan Avram and you can do the Ta's because that he, he takes into account. So, you do the Hilchus Purim, you know, you do the Malkan of Rome and the Taz. Okay, stop there. And then you do the khadosh, Uh which is like in the back, right? And um, uh, and then you see how he does it. Now, I don't know the history of all the printings. I know that they that they used to... This is just a good question. Somebody out there who's better in, in farmland will, will tell me. Uh, the way they ended up doing it in the 18th century was... They published the book, but they censored it. You get it? Knows when he said over here Rashi screwed up, like I told you, used those Lashonas, the Rashi just had a bad day, you know. The, the, the Yosef Kha just forgot what he said himself. They took all those out. Get it? And so you just have the the lumbest part minus the personal barbs. Um, the historian's interest in the personal barbs. Now, um, but in the process, I understand they 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 screwed up a little bit and they might have cut out some of the original uh, uh, material from the pre-Chadish himself. I don't remember the exact publication history of this, but it has a very interesting publication history because of the controversial nature of what I just said. Um, I know I saw in the last year in the bookstore, in black covers, like from the, um, is it from the Zechron or one of those type of publishing houses, the pre-Chadish, I don't know, in Shash or something like that. I don't know. I actually asked a friend of mine today, if he didn't get back to me, you know, has the pre been published with the original? Do you have the full unvarnished text? Or is that, or or do you have to go to the original printing to get that? You know what I'm saying? Uh, because, to tell you the truth, I can't imagine a firm publishing house today would include all these Lashonahs such as I just described. And there's plenty more than I just mentioned. Plenty more. On the other hand, those who are... Sticklers, they want to get the, the original text, will want to know it. It's the kind of thing, it's probably in a blog somewhere, you know what I mean? <laughs> One of those blog situations. Uh, you know, get the unvarnished uh, pre-Khadash. But uh, I guess you have to be a certain Madrega to, to to appreciate that <laughs> kind of business. Um, it would be interesting if you want to get the real feeling for it, if they would they would have to do like this. Some would have to come out now just the Shulchan with the pre You get it? Your day and the archive parts. That's all there is. You'd have to do the, you just have to have, like for example, you see now they did it with the Uniswah, it's a crazy place. So you just have the Shulchan in the middle and the crazy place on the side. It would just be like that. So you'd have to have the Shulchan in the middle, and then the pre Khalish on the sides. That you get an original feeling for what it's like. But how many people are, is that a, does that apply to? You know, you, because you have to be interested in your day. I don't know. Um, but I find the whole era to be a very romantic one. I don't mean romantic in the American sense, you know, boys and girls. I'm talking romantic in the classic sense. Uh, there's so many colorful figures, and here's a guy who operated totally in the Sephardic Spanish Portuguese world. You know, he he completely could live a full life in the Sephardic diaspora, and you had their gadolim and their Bezdins and their shulchanorach, and the Sephardic diaspora ran. All the way to Amsterdam and places like that. You understand? Uh, he says, by the way, in the original one, he has a So I want to thank my my contributors from Amsterdam, but also from Livorno and from London and uh, some other places like that. He really, he knew how to touch base with the entire uh, Sephardic And I'll say it again, he wasn't wasting his time. wasn't a phony, the opposite. So um, where would his career have taken him had he lived a full life and not had a son death in the mid-30s? That's one of those unanswered questions, which I say before gives a kind of romantic, uh, you know, spin to any discussion of the pre especially if you combine that with that picture. Like I said, I don't know if they have it on. Usually they have it in black and white. I saw it online. That doesn't do justice to it. you get the original thing in the color, oh, baby. It's a painting that's today in the Israel Museum. Once many, many years ago when my mother was alive, I once went to the Israel Museum, and I saw it. Um, and then I had to get out of there because I found out that they have some dead body or something, something like that. I'm a Cohen, you know. Nobody told me. I just remember that. So uh, I'm going back uh, 25 years at least. Uh, but if you happen to be in Israel, you want to see it, you can go there and see it yourself. Um, anyway, I've talked long enough. With that once again, I want to thank the uh, sponsor today, and uh, uh, in memory of. The lady lived to be 101, and with that, I wish you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.